Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Helene Berger, the author of Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. It's a personal story about her late husband, Addie. And when we've just celebrated Valentine's Day and think of love, I think we're going to find a love story here as well. And beyond that, there's a beautiful way of simply being together, of sharing a wonderful respect with a special person in our life. Let's meet Helene and gain some important insights. Helene Berger, good morning. It is so wonderful to have you with us this morning. Well, I'm privileged to be on your show, and uh, I, after listening to your interviews, I know how thorough your research is, so thank you so much for having me. Oh, I just have to, I'm going to say, toss this back to you because I am just so in awe of you and what you have done and done it so graciously. And, you know, when we think of the condition of Alzheimer's, but we can, as we find through your book, Choosing Joy, we find that this is applicable to any kinds of conditions and to just life in general. So I have to say that, you know, the way that you approach this, Helene, is just so incredibly gracious and kind and generous. And we can really learn so much, I think, about life in general from this. But here you have focused on Alzheimer's because, sadly, this is what entered your life. Well, now it's, what, about 15 or so years ago, right? Yes. That your husband, A.D., was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Correct. So the history for me is that uh, shortly after our 50th anniversary, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And um, he began to go down the typical path of the first year. And it was, you know, with stubbornness and frustration and irritability and annoyance and occasionally inappropriate behavior. When he was diagnosed, his words were to the doctor when he pronounced the, the three fateful words, you have Alzheimer's. He said very clearly and quietly to the doctor, I don't want to live anymore. And then the first year, he went down, as I just said, that path. And within the first, after the first year, he became known by everyone as the man with the radiant smile. And in the following years, and I'll get into more of this later, but in the following years, he began to do what was unthinkable before things that he could not even think of doing, he was able to do beautifully. And let me fast forward and jump to the, the last night of his life, uh, six years later, and we took out 17 friends for dinner as a thank you. And I purposely didn't tell him ahead of time who was coming because I didn't want him to feel that he had to remember the names. But when the guests arrived, he greeted, after six years of Alzheimer's, every single guest by name. And if that were not enough, when we sat down, he was in a wheelchair because he had fractured his hip uh, two and a half years before. But when we all sat down at the table, he raised his glass, water he never drank, and made the most articulate, profound toast, thanking each guest for their kindness, their attention, their calls, and, and for taking care of me. 
And when we left the evening, two of the couples came over and said the identical words, are you sure he has Alzheimer's? And the book is why this transformation was possible. And it is wonderful, actually, the way that you presented this, Helene, in talking about the day of the diagnosis and then fast forward the last day of his life and what a transformation there was. Obviously, six years intervened in the course of that, but it shows what can happen that he was just so full of life and his brain was so engaged and active. Well, that is that is the key word. Uh, when I realized after the first year and watched with Hara as uh, this beautiful, kind, gentle, loving man was going downhill, I began to think, what, what, what can I do? How can I change this? And I realized that I couldn't change him, but I could change myself. And we had a relatively very good marriage with the usual bumps in the early years that all all couples have. And I think during those 50 years before the Alzheimer's, we learned how to, how to work out problems together. And so the changes that began started with me. And I'll give you an example or two. Uh, typical of every Alzheimer's patient is that they ask the same question uh, over and over again and forget the answer two minutes later. And what I realized was, I remember one night I asked the same question and on the, by the fifth time, what I did is what everybody does. I answered with the same words, but before I answered, I realized that I either took a, a sigh or raised an eyebrow or maybe closed my eyes for a minute before answering, which was basically not verbally but non-verbally. My behavior was saying, I've told you that a hundred times already, and my own frustration showed. And one night when I did that, I saw because I watched him like a hawk, I saw that it was like a punch in the gut for him. And I said to myself, you are not going to do that again. You're not going to let your nonverbal expression diminish him. And I remember going that night, there was a ballet I was going to, and I remember looking for a blank page on the program and making a note to myself that I will not do that again. Now, I've got to tell you, that was one of the hardest things, strangely enough, that I had to do. But so soon, when I saw the results of, of his reaction to, to that, and I would say, honey, I, I'm going to the ballet with Elaine the seventh time as sweetly as the first, and he would nod and say, yes, yes, I remember. But I wasn't diminishing him. I wasn't diminishing who he was and accepting and and that was the key throughout the whole book. Um, the, the bottom line of the whole book, really, is how our attitude can change the life of the people we love and our own. 
because when I started to learn, and the book is chock full of examples like that, I can give you dozens of the things that I didn't know when I started, but what I learned through watching him and caring about him and wanting to give each of us the best life possible in the years that we had. That is so beautiful. It's such a wonderful love story is what you are recounting to us, Helene, along with the fact that I feel this really then is applicable to all of us, whatever stage of life, whatever it is that we're dealing with. And you say this early on in the book that we always have that option of changing our attitude. That's true. I, I remember reading a marvelous book by Viktor Frankl, a uh, book with Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a survivor of the death camps of the Nazi Germany. And one sentence, I think I put it, I did put it in the book, was, if I can recall, the the one thing no one can take away from us is the attitude that we choose, and that that really stuck with me. And um, it makes a difference. There are, there were so many other. Let me give you another example of uh, of breakthroughs that I made. And by the way, one of the things that's unique about the book, I think, is that every time I realized something that was happening, I didn't just say, "Oh, that that's good. That works for that." I tried to find the philosophy, the principle behind what I did so I could apply it to other things. And one major breakthrough came uh, from watching. We had a housekeeper that came in three days a week, and she was there one morning, and she came into the bedroom, and had she said in a cheery voice, Mr. Berger, your breakfast is ready, I would have thought, isn't that lovely? She never did that. She said, Mr. Berger, are you ready for breakfast? And the brilliance of that hit me like a thunderbolt and changed everything for the next few years. In the one case, no matter how sweetly you say your breakfast is ready, it's an implied command. Your breakfast is ready, you have to come and eat what she did was ask a question, and it was his decision, and he owned it. And everything that I ever had to tell him in the next years was always not telling him what to do, but in the form of a question. A dear, would you rather draw tonight, or would you rather do Sudoku? Would you even, dear, would you, would you like to go to the bathroom before we go to the doctor's office? Uh, which movie would you like to write? Uh, watch. And what happened is all his opposition basically vanished because he wasn't being told what to do. You take a successful person or even you take um, the driver of a truck, whoever. They're experienced in what they do. They've made decisions all their lives. And when you start telling a grown man or woman what they have to do, there's a natural rebellion, a natural feeling of decline, that they're telling me what to do, I, I know what to do. And the magic of putting it into a question just gave him his dignity and stopped the opposition. 
And so my the philosophy between that is question versus command. And I would write these little notes to myself, usually the concert and scribbled on a program, of trying to think what, what is the philosophy behind an action so I could apply it to many, many other situations. And that, Helene, is why this book is so beautiful and such a wonderful testament, really, to life. So Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope. It just resonates. That hope just resonates throughout. And it's a guide. As you were saying, you would make these notes along the way, not thinking at the time, oh, I'm going to write a book about this, did you? Never. (laughs) The last thing in my mind. And yet... You know, here we are with the results of it, choosing joy, and it's so wonderful. It's so uplifting. And really, for us in this world where we know that the incidence of Alzheimer's is increasing, but other diseases like Parkinson's disease and cancer is all these epidemic proportions, here you're giving us such great techniques that help us to live life still to the fullest. Uh, thank you. One of my, uh, the daughter of one of my friends who's now in her 50s, I got so many beautiful letters from people who read the book, and she writes me this long, wonderful letter. At the end, she said, Elaine, you have to know how universal your book is. I am speaking to my husband differently than I ever spoke to him before reading your book. <laughs> and I thought, that just was so important to me that uh, people had that reaction. Uh, one, one of the other things, if we have time, yes. is uh, that I was very conscious of, is keeping his mind active. He was engaged every minute of every day. When you read the book, you'll see the schedules and the timing that we had. We had a goal and a plan. And what we did was I introduced new activities that he enjoyed, but also renewed old things that he enjoyed. For example, uh, he played the piano beautifully, and he had stopped playing for about three, the first three years of the Alzheimer's, he just stopped. And one day I said, dear, you got such joy out of the piano. Why aren't you playing? My fingers don't work anymore. Why not? And I said, would you, would you, give me 10 minutes a day and see how it goes. Maybe your fingers aren't working because you haven't played. Anyway, he, that soon came became an hour a day of his sitting there and playing Beethoven and Mozart and Rachmaninoff and beaming and smiling, drawing. He never drew in his life. And one day after dinner, I had a beautiful new blank pad and crayons and markers and I put this in front of him, and I said, draw something. And he looked at me like I was off my rocker and said, what should I draw? I said, whatever makes you happy. And that began at primitive, certainly not museum-quality drawings, uh, but that became an activity that he did virtually every night, and the book is not full of them. They wouldn't let me put that many in, but the book shows that no this person who said, I don't want to live anymore, nobody could draw the pictures of joy that that he did if they were depressed. And activity, I can't even think of them all, Sudoku. I tried him. He, he was considered a mathematician. He loved math. And I tried him on Sudoku puzzles the first, second year. 
and he just couldn't get it. He didn't understand the, the little boxes and little numbers. In the last two years of his life, he, we did Sudoku together most nights. And I, I, not no hints for me, but we sat, and sometimes it took two nights to get through one. But he all these new activities, and one activity that delighted me was his idea, and that was he started writing, even though I was in the next room, he started writing little love notes to me each night, and I treasured them, and I put some of them in the book, and they're, they're fun, and they're just delightful. So the active mind, no matter what we can do to be creative and not be afraid to introduce new things, and, uh, and music was a big, big part of his life, and we did go to many, many concerts, and I never had to sit in fear that he would do something inappropriate because he was so absorbed by the music. So I was very lucky with that. And when you spoke to his physician, to the specialist, he said that this totally made sense about how the brain works. Yeah, well, I, I asked him because uh, I, I couldn't believe what was happening and, and friends who observed him couldn't believe what, what was happening. And when I asked him about four months before he passed away because we kept going back and we went to the, the state-of-the-art Wien Center for Memory Disorder and this is the head of the, the head of the whole center. And I asked him one day, Dr. Drora, is it possible that his brain is building new passages around the damaged ones? And he looked at me with a big smile and said, absolutely. And uh, it, it was so, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize until writing this book, how difficult it was. Because every day of the last five years was a day of joy because I saw his improvement. And when I wrote the book and realized what we did, I was like, wow, <laughs> did, did, I, did we do that together? And that's the other big point. He was a part of everything. Any, there were, of course, there were problems along the way. Of course, there started to be inappropriate behavior and all kinds of things. I came to him with honesty, with an open discussion, with involving him in the solution. And I never, if people get, tell a white lie because I think it helps, I have no criticism. Whatever works, works. But for me, I never bent the truth. And he knew it. And because of that, he trusted me. And, and he responded positively. And he knew that I had his his interest totally, totally at heart. And, and you know, it's, it's really important. I, I don't want to have this interview end before saying what I always, always must include when I speak. And that is that nothing I've said on this call, nothing I've described in the book uh, that worked for us, nothing is a guarantee that others will have similar results. There are hundreds and thousands of people who have given their all, their soul, their heart, their energy, their time uh, to a loved one and still ended up with someone who didn't know their names or didn't know the names of the children and, and uh, you know, absolutely did not have this result. And so I just don't want to imply, Miss Pollyanna, that if you do this, everything's going to be fine. It's not. Uh, every relationship is different. Every person is different. And I guess my goal in writing this is to 
suggests that we be creative in making just sweet times and that uh, we open doors that, that have never been opened before and, and just to try to live as fully as the condition allows. And, and my hope is to truly help others on this journey and experience, a, a, for both of you, a less stressful time knowing that we are not the hapless victims of fate, that our actions can and do make a difference, and that we really can choose to live with hope and, yes, even joy. And thus, the title is so appropriate that it is choosing joy, but that there is that conscious activity of choice, of making the choice, correct? That's that's what it's about. It's, to, it's totally what it's about. And we should mention uh, your website, because that's a, a great wealth of information and a way to get to, to the book, uh, and also it's available at all of our favorite book sources, correct? Yeah, yes, I'm delighted with the website, and uh, it includes so many things. Let me tell you what it is first. It's very, very simple, www.helaneberger.com spelled with all these H-E-L-E-N-E, Berger, B-E-R-G-E-R, dot com, www.HelaneBerger.com. And go go on the media, media tab, which, uh, which gives, I've fortunately been blessed to ask to do many of these interviews, and they are on there. And uh, also what I'm delighted about is the book has been out just a month and a half, and when I checked last, there were 14 reviews on Amazon from people I, I don't, all unsolicited, and some of them very lengthy and powerful, and every one so far is a five-star. So it, it just, this whole experience has been beyond gratifying for me, and I'm glad that that. I had all these notes that I've been scribbling to myself only for myself, and I'm so pleased that so many friends came to me when they saw the positive change to ask what I was doing, what medication was he on, and uh, I'm so glad they did that, they observed that, because that's what really inspired me uh, to write the book. And we are certainly the richer for that fact. So we owe it to ourselves because as your the daughter of one of your friends said, the book is universal. Yes, it deals with an illness, which is great because it gives some great ideas that we might choose to try. But just in general, you know, applying it to life, I think really it is such a gift to us. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And I, I must say that uh, I had a delightful time on this interview with you. You've, you've been simply wonderful, and I appreciate it. Well, um, for that, I'm grateful. Thank you, Helene. And the thing is, um, you know, before we really wrap it up, one of the other key things that I think is critical, because it's all part of balance, and again, it applies to our life, not just when we're dealing in a serious situation where a partner or a family member is dealing with this uh, very tough illness, is taking care of self. You definitely made sure that there was time to take care of you. There's a whole chapter on the book in that. 
and it is crucial. And uh, and it I it took me a while to understand that and to learn that. And I I sought the opinion of a psychiatrist before he was diagnosed, and uh, and she was. It, it was wonderful, and she kept urging me. She said, "You, it's not just yourself. You, you cannot, you cannot take care of him if you're not looking after yourself." And uh, and her, in the beginning, I almost felt guilty if I went out and, and played tennis for an hour or, or, or saw friends. And she absolutely insisted that I continue to live. And let me say, you, no one can do this 24-7. It is impossible to be whole. And if you try to do that, uh, you'll go downhill uh, faster uh, than, than your mate. And I actually had no additional help for the first three and a half years until he fractured his hip. And then I had no choice. I couldn't lift him. I couldn't do certain things. And in retrospect... That was a mistake, because he flourished the most after I had the help. Why? Because if I went out for an hour, or even whatever it was that I did, I came back that I'd done something beautiful and wonderful and fulfilling, and I was able to give so much more of myself to him. And so I urge urge people to find it doesn't have to be a, a trained aide. It can be a high school student to play checkers or chess or, or a game. Get yourself a friend or or someone not necessarily trained uh, just to give you that respite and uh, for an, an hour a day or, or two or whatever you need. But it's crucial to your own sanity. <laughs> And I think also the physical health, that I think it's been documented that if we don't give ourselves that care, ultimately some, somewhere it's going to erupt in our body. So we really need to do that uh, responsibly. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. And, I, and what, the, what the doctor did for me is, is enabled me not to feel guilty about it. <laughs> And it's so funny because in the beginning, uh, I was motivated by very by not by not healthy things. If I did that, what will people think? And I would feel guilty. And the opposite happened. People I barely knew would come to me and say, "Helene, you are handling this so beautifully." And I was shocked because I thought I would be judged harshly for it. And then I learned. I have to do what I I need to do for my life and not be motivated by what others might think. Absolutely. Again, those words of wisdom that resonate throughout the pages of this wonderful book, Choosing Joy, Alzheimer's, A Book of Hope, but it really is universal. Again, your your daughter's friend having said that, but definitely I feel a, a true statement. And I am just so grateful, you know, that you did all you did and that you wanted then to share it with us, with the world, Helene. Uh, it is truly a beautiful treasure, a great gift. Let's actually wrap it up with mentioning your website one more time. Okay. www.helaneberger.com. And there's every vowel in that is an E, H-E-L-E-N-E-B-E-R-G-E-R. And let me just thank you 
for allowing me to share it with a vast number of people on your wonderful program. Well, again, I feel that I've been privileged to be able to do so. Many, many thanks, Helene. Thank you. I'm Andy Ringenberg, and this is your Sunday morning shout-out. And for this week, our shout-out goes to the Museum of History and Industry, or more commonly known as MOHAI. Now, Seattle's MOHAI has been a Smithsonian affiliate since 2009, and they dedicate their time to enriching lives through persevering, sharing, and teaching the diverse history of Seattle, the Puget Sound region, and our nation. As the largest private heritage organization in our state, the museum engages communities through interactive exhibits, online resources, and award-winning public and youth education programs. Now, already with 2020 started, this is the year for a presidential election. And with that, Mohai is proud to welcome their new exhibit coming out April 25th. And that exhibit is called American Democracy, A Great Leap of Faith. This is an exhibit part of the Smithsonian Institute, and it celebrates a bold and radical experiment to test a new form of government. Now, Mohai is going to be the only West Coast venue to showcase this exhibit on their national tour for American democracy. This exhibit will educate their guests on the nation's political, economical, and social life and depends on the informed engagement of each citizen. Explore America's bold experiment in a government of, quote, of, by, and for the people at Seattle's Museum of History and Industry this spring with American Democracy, a great leap of faith exhibit. This exhibit will also have five separate sections that you can test out, one of them being the Great Leap, which examines the system that colonists inherited and the issues that the founding generation debated about to change the world. Other sections as part of this exhibit are a vote, a voice, talking about the direct voice in the political process, as well as other sections creating citizens, the machinery of democracy, and beyond the ballot. Mohai is open daily, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. You can also check out their website for other selected exhibits that they have coming up, as well as other best times to visit, events going on, even join their membership program. They've got a lot of educational programs for guests to check out, as well as just going on there and learning a little bit more about what you're about to see. Go ahead and check out their website. That's mohai, M-O-H-A-I dot org. I'm Andy Ringenberg, and this has been your Sunday morning shout-out. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Helene Berger and Sunday Morning Magazine with Toby Nelson from the U.S. Census Bureau. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email. K-A-T-E-D at warm1069.com and I'll get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Click on the podcast tab and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of kindness and consideration. Have a week of the same and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.